come to Romans chapter 13 in our series of talks through Romans and it is fitting given what's happening in our world just now to consider this text and learn about God's ways from it and then to live as we should in light of God's word because that's the reason for which God has given it to us. Romans 13, it's the whole chapter, we're only going to touch on some of the points in it, but let's read it all together. This is the reading of God's word. Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh as we've said for the last couple of weeks Romans chapters 1 through to 11 were Paul's doctrine about who God is and what God has done in his great salvation that is provided in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ he's laid all that out for this church to whom he is writing because the church is divided And he wants them to recognise that they're all together in one thing for God. And that their reasons for division are no reasons at all. And he wants them to come together. So beginning in chapter 12 then, he switches from the doctrine and says, this is what your duty is, or this is what your devotion should look like in light of everything that God has done. So his general instruction as to living a life that is lived entirely for the glory of God begins in chapter 12. He's mentioned 
how it controls. Paul has, he's mentioned how it controls the doctrine about God and his ways and the transformation that faith in Christ Jesus brings to us. He's mentioned how it should control our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. How we interact with each other in the local church family. We've seen that in chapter 12. How we interact with outsiders, we might say, and even enemies. That's mentioned in chapter 12. And then we move into chapter 13. Of course, chapter breaks are something that were inserted later for us to be helped to navigate around the Bible. So there really isn't a break in Paul's thinking and flow of thought here. But he brings us now to see that we have a responsibility to relate to the civil authorities in a way that honours God. And then he seems to switch back again and focuses back in on our relationships with one another in our church family, if we might describe it that way. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And then he carries on to explain what that should look like in our lives. Here in these first seven verses of chapter 13, we're told about how we relate to the governing authorities, how we relate to the civil authorities. One thing is we're to be subject and the second thing is we're to pay taxes. They're imperatives that Paul has given as inspired by the Spirit of God to instruct us in our living. Government is one of three institutions, I would suggest to you, that God has given for all humanity to bring order into the way that life and society occurs. One is marriage, the second is the family unit, and the third is government. Now, when all those are performed and lived out with God in view, then life will be good. When we decide to do it our own way, then society crumbles. We don't have time to pursue that any further in the matter of marriage and, and family. And we've seen the, the devastation that has been caused in society by the breakdown of, of marriage and families. We also see the devastation, don't we, when it comes to the civil authorities who have no regard for God and the consequences that come of that. But we're told, as those who are offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God, to live subject to the government, consider the situation in the time when the New Testament was written, just for a moment with me. If we think it might be difficult in our world today, there's really nothing new under the sun. When Paul was writing this, Caesar was the absolute ruler. Caesar is Lord, was what people were supposed to say. And that's why Jesus is Lord, as, as a thing that Christians were saying, was a thing that brought them into confrontation with people in society. Remember that the Caesar could demand that the whole empire be taxed. Luke chapter 2, people forced to leave where they were living to go to their homelands so that they might take part in the census. Caesar could make unilateral decisions at a whim, depending on his mood, whatever he felt like that day. Not just Caesar, 
who at this time was overall of the Roman Empire, had absolute control, but he had delegated control to rulers. And we've, we've read about rulers in here. Think about some of those in the lifetime of the Lord Jesus. The Herods, for example, localized rulers. Herod had the power, unilateral power, it would seem, to murder children under the age of two with, without any consequence to himself. You have a later Herod who's able to give the command to take the head off John the Baptist without any consequence coming his way. We're thinking about a time when rulers, when they ruled, could really do whatever they wanted. Pilate, Luke chapter 13 tells us that the people were speaking to the Lord Jesus about the Galileans and Jesus himself was a Galilean who'd come up to the feast at Jerusalem and it says that Pilate had mixed their blood with their sacrifices. So whatever had got into Pilate's head and for whatever reason he'd taken it out on some Galileans and done something horrific. These are the sort of leaders that the world produces because we're all sinners and it's all there within us this horror that manifests itself in this way. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, what Romans 13 tells us is, and Paul makes it clear for us, and God through him, he's making no distinction between what we might class as a good government and a bad government, between what we might class as a moral government or an immoral government, what we might class as, as a corrupt government or one that seemingly is less corrupt. Fair or unfair rulers. No distinction is made in this text. So Paul is saying to the believers in Rome, who were right there at the heart of the Roman Empire, with maybe the biggest threat to their existence if they were to uh, rebel against the Caesar. He says to them, you be subject to the ruling authorities. Christians are to live under the governments that exist, whatever they may be, and to be in subjection to them. That's what's expected of us as those who offer our lives to God. Now, we might not like the way things have been moving in our society in terms of government. And I just mentioned something, same-sex marriage, uh, the promotion of LGBT+. Stem cell research, anti-conversion therapy laws, anti-Christian rhetoric that so often is put out there. We might not like that coming from our government. But God's word says, not just here, but elsewhere too, that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. If you're taking any notes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17 Peter says the same thing. He's on the same page as Paul. Of course he is. Because they're on the same page from the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he says, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. But use it as bond servants of God. Honour all people. 
Love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king, Peter says. So we have it more than once in God's word that we're to be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Paul tells us governments are ordained, divinely established by God, by divine decree. One thing that's very important to see in this and in the scriptures is that not only does God raise up some and depose others, but he holds those who are brought into those positions of authority accountable for their deeds. Remember the Lord Jesus in John 19 stood before Pilate as part of his trial process before his crucifixion. And when he refused to answer Pilate, Pilate said to him, you don't answer me. And Jesus answered him, And said, you would have no authority over me at all if it had not been given to you from above. For this reason, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. He was referring to the high priest. But the point there is that here was Jesus, the sovereign creator of the universe in his humanity, showing us that he would subject himself for the purposes of God. To that authority of that wicked man that was stood before him. Who says, you're not speaking to me. Do you not know who I am? The Lord says, you'd have no authority if it wasn't given you from above. So all those that have positions of authority in government. Have it from above. And there is no darkness with God. None at all. And that's where we in our limited struggling minds do find it hard but God is working out purposes in an interconnected system where the actions of one individual interact with others to seven billion plus um, multiplier every moment of every day God knows it all and is working out his purposes but he holds those rulers accountable I just want you to make a note of this mental note or written go back and look at Isaiah 10 when you go there it tells us that the Assyrians who were absolutely barbaric had come up and had already defeated the northern kingdom of Israel were also coming up and were destroying city after city 78 of them of the cities of Judah and they were coming close to Jerusalem as the last stronghold and the Lord said that the ruler of Assyria had got proud and thought this was all his own strength. And he uses very colourful language in his, in his speaking through Isaiah. And he says, will the axe say to the one that wields it, I'm in charge? Or will the club say to the one that holds it, I'm in charge? Making the point, the king of Assyria and the Assyrians and all of their wickedness were in the hand of God. And what they were permitted to do was at God's command and no further. And that's why when Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, God replied and says, this one is not going to step a foot inside Jerusalem. He's not even going to throw an arrow your direction and he's going to go back and he's going to die. This is our God. Habtu's, one of Habtu's favourite verses if he was here this morning is Psalm 7 and 11. God is a righteous judge. A God who shows indignation every day. What does that mean? It means that that God looks on those 
wicked people that do have control of government. And he is restraining himself because his purposes are being worked out, but he will hold them accountable. That's why in chapter 12, we are told as Christians, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, not to take vengeance on others against our enemies. Leave that for God. We can't know the ins and outs of God's purposes, but God is working out his glorious purposes. First reason, then, for submitting and subjecting ourselves to government is because they are there by divine decree. So we subject ourselves. I'm going to rattle through the other ones very quickly. Paul says to resist the government is actually to rebel against God. We're not those who rebel against God. We're those who want to live for God. Three, governments have the God-given authority to punish those who resist. So a system of law and order and punishment that goes with that is given to them by God. Now, of course, we know that governments are so often operating without any thought for God and that system gets corrupted and destroyed and we see the effects that has in society. But God says that we are still to be subject. The fourth reason that Paul gives us is that governments serve to restrain evil. You might think, well, we don't see much of that. We have to sit back here and accept God at his word and see that things could be much worse than they are because of the rulers that he has in place in this world. Difficult to understand, but that's the truth of God. Governments also, number five, are to promote good. And you know what it is, if we do the right thing by the law, then there, as Paul says, it's, there's no issue with conscience, either before the, the people around us, or ultimately, of course, uh, before God. So we do it for conscience sake, that's really number six. Paul lists that here in Romans chapter 13. I do want to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and some of you might have predicted we would go here but we do it because again it tells us how we are to be in relation to the governing authorities that God has decreed that we're to be subject to. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Paul says to Timothy, he says, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We all long, do we not, for peaceful and quiet lives where we can live out the godliness that God would have us live without persecution and without trouble. And even if we don't have that, we are still to pray with thanksgiving for the rulers that God has put in place. As we look at what is happening in Ukraine just now, we find this text difficult to understand. It's remote from us to some degree, so we, we can sort of turn away from it. But the reality is our world is a messed up, broken world because of sin. And God is working out his purposes. And ultimately, judgment will come on those who have rebelled against God and remain in their rebellion against God, whether they are leaders or whether they are the poorest of people, that is coming for all, for all have sinned. But yet God has provided the Saviour who himself would subject himself 
to the governing authorities that God had put in place, knowing that the greatest of injustice would occur when he was taken and crucified on a cross. And it says that he delivered him up for us all. God did. God delivered him up for us. A glorious God we serve. We pray to him with the petitions, the pleadings that are referred to here in the intercession. And we can do that with thanksgiving because we know a God who has got everything under his control. So we are to be subject to the government for the reasons that Paul has mentioned. But with one exception. When the government mandates what God forbids, we obey God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 18. Now these are localised authorities. This is the Sanhedrin that's being referred to. So this is the, the highest Jewish um, institution under the Roman authority. They did have governors like Pilate and so on over the region, but the Jews were given their freedoms and therefore there was a, an authoritative body known as the Sanhedrin 70 or 72 men who, who had um, responsibility for that, mixed in with uh, their religion uh, of Judaism and so on. But let's, let's read verse 18. It says, Then they, that's the Sanhedrin, called them, that's Peter and John, the apostles, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. Jesus had said, you will go and you will make disciples of all nations. And here, the Sanhedrin was saying, you're not to do that. And Peter and John say, uh, no, sorry, we're going to obey God. Go over to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 27. Because they carried on in their obedience to God, it says in verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter, just look at him. He says, yeah, you've told us. But let me tell you, we must obey God rather than people. And while I have your ear, let me tell you the gospel. That's what he does. That's what it looks like to obey God. So when government forbids you to do something that God has commanded you to do, or when government tells you to do something that God has said you are not to do, you obey God. Those are the exceptions. If you want an Old Testament example, what about the two um, Women that deliver babies. What's the word? Medwives. Yeah, couldn't think of the word. The two midwives, Shifra and Pua, I can remember the names. Um, funny names. But 
Shifra and Pua, they were told by Pharaoh to kill all the, all the baby boys that were born. Not doing that. That's contrary to God's ways. So when the government mandates what God's, God forbids, you obey God. And I might say this, you accept the consequences. If you read on in 1 Peter chapter 2 where we, we left off that little quotation, Peter goes on to speaking about slaves being in submission to their masters. And slavery was a big part of the Roman Empire. Uh, 60% of people were, were in some form of slavery to others. He says to them, you patiently endure suffering when doing good. And in so doing, you will silence others and you will show your godliness to people. God may call us in our circumstances and under the governance that God has put in place to stand for him against what the government is saying should be done. We do it to obey God. You pay your taxes as well. We'll not spend too long on this because I'm sure you're all good taxpayers. But tax collectors back then were hated because they were extortioners and thieves and abusers of the people, taking more than they had to pass on. The Lord Jesus helps us in this, Matthew 22 and 21, when they came to the Lord and says, do you pay taxes? And he asked for a coin and whose head's on there? Caesar's. And they said to him, then he said to them, then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. There's others that we could refer to in relation to that. He also paid the temple tax as well. The two coins found in the fish's mouth for him and for Peter as well. The Lord was subject to the governing authorities, even to their religious authorities and all of their corruption, he would still pay the tax. He would still pay the tax to Caesar with all of the corruption associated with that because he was one who was modeling for us the life that is to be lived for God. I might just say this very quickly in passing. What we don't see is Jesus involved in social reform. We don't see him involved in civil rights marches. He knew that that which was good and equitable will occur when hearts are changed by the gospel. That's what we're called to too. To be sharers of the gospel in a society that is broken because of sin, yet governed by a sovereign Lord, we are to give ourselves wholly to living rightly and giving respect to whom it's due, paying taxes to whom it is due, with the exception, of course, when they tell us to do something that God has said we should or shouldn't do. And we live accepting the consequences for all of that, and we do so because it gives testimony to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 8 to 10, Paul seems to then come back quickly and say, you love your neighbour, and I think he's talking about um, those in the church community because he says every one of you so he's addressing them again he's setting them up for the real incisive teaching that he's dry, getting to in chapters 14 and 15 that addresses the real issue in the church and we're going to get there Lord willing if we're spared until next week so we'll get there but he says owe nothing to anyone except to love one another love your neighbour as yourself have that as your way of living, not just with your church community, but with others too. And I want to finish with this very quickly. Wake up. That's where he finishes. He says, wake up. Our salvation, in the sense of 
the salvation that has been promised to us. We have a salvation that is past. We have been saved from the penalty of sin as it's described. We have a salvation that is present. That we are rescued and helped from the power of sin in our experience. Because the Holy Spirit indwells us and we can appeal to God to help us to live in this life here and now in the present. That's present salvation. But there's a future aspect of salvation which is when we will be taken from the presence of sin. And God will have a new heavens and a new earth in which there is righteousness. And there's no longer any mourning and crying and tears. None of that. None of the things that characterize this world because of sin. It's all gone. And because our salvation is near now than when it has ever been. Because time is passing. Let's wake up and live this way. Paul says, live as those who are anticipating the day of Christ, his return, the day of God beyond that that is eternal, when you will be with God in his presence. Anticipate that. Live in the light that this darkness, this present darkness, is going to give way to a whole new existence, which is full of light, and bring others with you from the darkness into that light so they might enjoy it too. With that in mind, Paul concludes with two put-ons. Put on the armour of light. You know, the Greek word for armour there actually means the weapons of light. We often think of armour as a defensive thing you put on to protect yourself. But armour in its fullest sense is not only that which is defensive, but that which has an offensive weapon or two as well. You arm up, you tool up. So Paul encourages the church in Rome and us too. In light of all that God has done... And what God is instructing us in very practical ways in how we're to live. Let's tool up. How do we tool up? We look at the Lord Jesus Christ. We look into God's word. We instruct one another. We help one another. We admonish one another. We lovingly help one another in all of this. We tool up appropriately that we might make a real difference in this dark world. His second put on is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. One person has said this is to appropriate, to appropriate Christ's virtues and to imitate his love. If Jesus would live in subjection to the authorities, knowing what it was going to result in, then we should do the same. If Jesus would do everything so that his neighbour would know his love, then we do the same thing. For those inside, if we might say it in the church, for those outside who are maybe looking in, and for those who are even our enemies, we give ourselves completely Romans 12 verse 1 in this way for the glory of God so let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices and get rid of ourselves and embrace all of Christ that God reveals to us through his spirit and by his power enables us to live